Protection approaches established in 2014 are a charity aiming to end all forms of identity-based violence conveyed in their atrocity prevention program, where their team works with the UK government to improve understanding and prevention of atrocities alongside the numerous other resources Protection Approaches provides, such as their school workshops. Our guest today, Kate Ferguson, is the co-executive director and head of research and policy at Protection Approaches, as well as chair of policy at the European Centre for Responsibility to Protect, who uphold the norm of the responsibility to protect, a global commitment by countries to prevent mass atrocity crimes adopted by all member states of the UN in 2005. Today, myself, Oscar and Kate will be discussing the question can genocide be prevented? But first, Kate, Protection Approaches was founded in 2014. Uh, what were your main motivations in founding it when you did? Um, well, first, thanks very much for having me. Real privilege to be with you this afternoon. I think there were probably a couple of reasons why Andy and I founded Protection Approaches. We were actually both working in Rwanda at the time, both in different ways towards the 20th commemoration of the genocide there. and. We talked a lot about the imperative to learn from the past, but something that we both found very difficult was that, and this was 2013, 2014, Syria at that time was, was, was really experiencing, as sadly it is now, very high levels of mass atrocity crimes directed against civilian populations. And we couldn't really see where the outcry was. And we couldn't really see where, from UK civil society, the voice of um, protecting those populations from mass atrocity crimes was coming from, or work towards or with the UK government to ensure that that responsibility to protect that you just mentioned was, was upheld. And so really a kind of founding motivation for protection approaches was that there should be an organization in the United Kingdom tasked with upholding and working towards the responsibility to protect populations in all places from atrocity crimes and to work with the government. But the second reason was that we were also noticing some of the really fantastic work that was being done in Rwanda by Rwandans in this very divided society and also being funded by the Department for International Development, um, so by the UK government, that was about bringing a community back together, that was about peace education, that was about building sustainable peace and resilient societies. And to Andy and I, that was something that was also needed domestically in the United Kingdom. It was something that was lacking. And so we wanted to bring the principles of atrocity prevention to our own communities domestically in the UK, while at the same time, strengthening our contributions abroad. Would you be able to elaborate on the current climate in the UK and why you are targeting the UK um, specifically with protection approaches? Sure. Um, there are many kind of common assumptions about where genocide and where crimes against humanity come from. And I think it has been too easy in past decades, if you're in the United Kingdom, to assume that we are somehow immune to those challenges. Identity-based violence is something that exists in all societies everywhere and so the prevention of it is needed everywhere all of the time rather than some places some of the time and if you start looking at the commonalities of where this kind of violence comes from obviously the local context is always very particular but there are these real common kind of factors trust in institutions trust in the press trust in government 
working democracies and open and free media, the levels of social cohesion, levels of hate crime, levels of violence against women, belief in expertise, so on. There's many, many, many factors. And we've been tracking those risk factors in the UK since we founded, and I've been looking at them since, since before protection approaches existed. And we can really see many of those indicators going in the wrong direction. And so therefore we can see the kind of trajectory of risks of violence and identity-based violence, and that includes violent extremism. It probably doesn't include genocide, you know, we're not near that. But in terms of violence against groups because of their religion, because of their race, because of their gender, because of their age, you know, that we're seeing more and more and more. And that was before the pandemic. And so when the pandemic hit, we then also saw an increase in hate crime. We've seen, I think, the statistic that, that is most um, commonly used is a 300% increase of anti-Asian hate in the UK in 2020. And, and we can see that, yes, this might have been triggered by COVID-19, its impacts and some of the appalling consequences it has produced and prejudices that it has unveiled. But it is because of that low resilience that already existed that exacerbated that vulnerability. And how do you think that sort of the blend of all these problems in the UK has affected the response to genocides in foreign countries, especially in the UK government? Well, I'll move on to the UK government in a minute. I actually think that there is this assumption that the UK public aren't interested in preventing genocide abroad or aren't interested in atrocity prevention. But whenever we do polling of public opinions or other people do polling of public opinion, you really see such an overwhelming commitment from the British public to that sense of a responsibility to protect populations from the gravest crimes, a responsibility to contribute towards global challenges like climate change, like poverty, like inequality, uh, population movements and so on. And so I do think that that's very important. And sometimes in our press and in our conversations that sort of dominate headlines, that gets forgotten about. I think politicians forget about it. In terms of what the UK government is doing, it's an interesting one because this particular government has probably done more to strengthen contributions to atrocity prevention than any previous government. And yet I would also argue that it has probably done more to perpetuate a domestic polarization and a, an absconding of responsibilities domestically towards social cohesion than any government we've seen for a very long time. So it's a kind of inconsistent picture, I would say. So you've mentioned that the current government has done more for atrocity prevention and awareness than other governments. Would you say that, we're, that it's enough, it's on trajectory to be enough? And if not, what can be done? What should they be doing as of now that they're not doing? Yeah, great. I, I, I suppose um, if I thought they were doing enough, then I would be able to stop working and go on a really big holiday. So no, they're not, they're not doing enough. A couple of months ago, the Prime Minister published the outcome of a year-long review of development, defence and diplomacy policy. And it set out this new pathway for the future of UK foreign policy. And in that, it committed to prioritising atrocity prevention. And so this is a really important step forward. And so that's one of the reasons why I say that this government, rather than previous UK governments, has done more. 
But at the moment, we don't know what that commitment looks like. We don't know what that means. And at the same time, we see, and I'm sure you will have seen too, um, a cutting to UK contributions to overseas development in fragile states, in countries where atrocities are taking place, places like Yemen, places like the Democratic Republic of Congo. So what the UK government needs to do, I argue, and, and many of our partners do, is it needs to have a clear strategy. You can't just say, I want to prevent genocide. We all want to prevent genocide. What that means in practice, though, is having a consistent approach that means that when you make your decisions, whether that is about who you trade with, how you respond to climate, you're always thinking about the impact that decision will have on populations that could be potentially vulnerable to genocide, crimes against humanity, other atrocity crimes. So that's what we're asking for, a framework that allows someone in government to make decisions from that perspective and to have the capacity to do that. And the other thing they need to do is they need to train their staff. You, you, you will know, because you know, I know the fantastic work that your school does on these issues, that, that genocide prevention is distinct from, say, conflict prevention or other challenges. There's a reason why you focus on that specifically, because it requires a different way of thinking. And so we need to make sure that all of, our, all of the UK staff in embassies in countries where atrocities are taking place or when there's a risk of atrocity, so whether that's in China, whether that's in Myanmar, that UK staff have been trained to do that thinking. So those are kind of my two, my two big wish lists for, for the government. Yeah, no, that's a good wish list. I think you slightly uh, mentioned media, um, and especially nowadays you see, I guess, the downsides of social media on topics like racism, especially against, you see, sports players a lot of the time. How has social media helped with prevention awareness of genocide, would you say that it has been more positive than negative? Oh, it's such a such a tricky question. Um, if you'll let me, I'm going to answer it from the perspective as a, being a historian, <laughs> because words and communication have have been bound up in both the protection of populations and in the direction of identity-based violence and genocide for as long as those crimes have existed. But something has happened since technology has taken many of those communications online. And I think actually we're still working out the pros and the cons of that. And I think that if you imagine that the printing press several hundreds of years later led to the French Revolution, and the advent of the radio contributed to all sorts of social upheavals and democratic developments decades and decades later. We're sort of seeing something like that with the internet. And I, my historian brain tells me not to give any quick answers to that, but we definitely know that the internet has shrunk our kind of geographies of responsibility. We all feel, or not we all, those of us that kind of are under 45, feel much more international than older generations. That hasn't diluted our sense of kind of national identity. But, you know, if you ask young people, and we, we did a survey about, about this in the UK a couple of years ago, young people, as well as feeling English or British, also feel European, also feel part of an international community. And that's something that social media has done. 
And when we see human rights violations, like what's happening in Palestine right now, we are brought so much closer to it. And I do think that there's something remarkable for solidarity and advocacy, but also we can become immune to it. And we are so used to seeing these images and these uh, so solidarity movements, this kind of clicktivist, clicktivism approach to enormous global challenges and local challenges that require real hard work to respond. And then at the same time as that, you're seeing the same platforms that are being leveraged for change and solidarity being leveraged in different places as tools of incitement to violence. We saw in Myanmar, the Facebook being used as a platform to incite a platform that later had to apologize and recognize that they didn't do enough to stop their system being used to contribute to offline violence. So I think the kind of jury is still out. My hope and our work at Protection Approaches is that the principles of community building and of social cohesion and of um, what it takes to be a responsible citizen and stand up against prejudice offline can very easily be replicated online, but we need to do it consciously. It needs to be something that is taught in schools. It needs to be something that online platforms have a very, very clear code of conduct about. And so I think that overall, kind of the arc of technology will kind of continue to bend both towards a fairer world and also to a kind of less stable one. But that's always been the case, I think. We just have to stay vigilant. You mentioned education. So what does Protection Approaches do? What kind of programs have you done in the past to, to you know, leverage the information that you really have to educate and teach? Sure. Well, I mean, I think time and time again, um, when I speak to other colleagues in my sector, you know, those that work either at the kind of very, uh, very close to where genocide and crimes against humanity occur, places where they have occurred, or in places like the UK, where our relationship is, to these crimes is slightly different, but the commitment to learn from them is, is perhaps no, no less. Education is always what everybody comes to as the answer. It is the most cost-effective, sustainable approach to building cohesive, responsible, empathetic, caring communities. And that is where resilience to division comes from. And so for that reason, Protection Approaches has always worked in and with schools to develop a number of kind of skill sets and tools for both the pupils, but also the schools as communities themselves. So we run workshops, uh, we do specific themed activities around, say, Holocaust Memorial Day, and we do assemblies and we do kind of constructive engagement with classes. But what we're increasingly doing is working actually with whole, whole of school. So you work with kind of the entire school community to build a really integrated whole school approach to building an environment that builds critical thinking, that builds community and that begins sort of cross-learning. Um, and yes, you bring in those lessons from the past, from the past atrocities. Yes, you learn from the perspectives of those who have experienced identity-based violence or even genocide. You're also bringing in the perspective of the students, of the teachers, of the parents. And so building a kind of a lasting architecture that means that 
preventing identity-based violence isn't just one curriculum day in your PSHE class. And I absolutely know that this is not the case of your school. You know, I think many schools around the country could learn from the way that the kind of principles of genocide prevention have been integrated. And that's essentially what, what we're really, really looking to do. So, so we have quite a kind of um, integrated approach to education and identity-based violence prevention. And then the last bit is that we then measure what works and we talk to the students and the teachers about what they felt worked and what they still felt they need. And then we pass that up to policymakers, the Department of Education, the select committees, and say, look, this is, this is what is needed in order to ensure that kind of young people in the next generation have the tools they need to navigate this kind of very complex world. Protection approaches started in 2014, as mentioned. What have you learned since the start? Any changing opinions in some matters of how things should be done? I suppose the big one is that things are both more possible than I had realized and more difficult. <laughs> and and that when, when Andy and I set out to create protection approaches, and we, we did it when we were in a bar in Lusaka and we did it on the back of a napkin one evening. And obviously it was informed by the conversations that we'd been having in Rwanda and, and before we even had known each other. But I don't think either of us could really have had any idea that that concept on that napkin would have ended up leading to such considerable change in how the UK understands atrocity prevention. And so in terms of sort of anyone thinking about getting into a career of advocacy and change, I think being able to recognize that your conviction and, and your identifying that kind of gap in a conversation holds enormous potential to change the direction of things. On the other hand, I really think I now have a much deeper appreciation of how interconnected change must be. And I think I used to understand the prevention of genocide, particularly, and, and crimes against humanity as something that could be more separated out from other challenges than the reality, I think, has us believe. And I think holding that balance between a desire for advocacy and for change, but the complexity of how change is brought about is something I continue to learn from, but also where I think the real interesting change comes from. Because once you have that appreciation of the fact that it's difficult and messier and more integrated, but also that you can still make that change, then actually you've shed some of those assumptions that previously held you back, that either it's too easy and simplistic, and if we just say that we want to prevent genocide, then that is sufficient, but also the belief that if you keep going, you'll break through. Because I think if you don't have that belief, then when you work in this field, it can be pretty bleak. You're also chair of policy at the European Centre for Responsibility to Protect. Would you say that's been successful? Well, I, it, I, I would say yes. And again, this is because I'm a historian and a historian of rights. And if you think about the long history of rights and how messy and complicated they are, and they are always marked by 
who was not protected by that step forward. If you look at the rights of man, they are the rights of man, not the rights of men and women. They're also the rights of landowning men and certainly not of the slaves that owned them. But it still was an important step forward in the trajectory of the rights of, of individuals against those that held power in states. And what we have with the responsibility to protect is that only 15 years ago, every member state of the United Nations recognized that the lives of populations within foreign states were very often, you know, could, could be protected above the ultimate uh, sovereign right of that government or, or um, sovereign power. That is remarkable for every member state to say that in certain circumstances, it is a collective responsibility to supersede sovereign power of a foreign state in order to protect populations that lie outside our own borders. And I think that what that has done to conversations around our responsibilities in the international community, in the global community, uh, outside our own borders, is to raise expectations. We now have an expectation that when crimes are ongoing, whether they're in Xinjiang or in Myanmar or Venezuela or in Gaza, that that's not something that states can simply wash their hands of and say that they are happening in this, in this, in this foreign state. And so I think one of the challenges that is often posed to the success of the responsibility to protect principle is that it hasn't sufficiently protected populations or that it has been employed inappropriately by state, by other states. And yes, those things are true, but to me that demonstrates something more important and, 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 and more um, overarching, which is that we have this expectations that these populations must be protected. And that's where we're going towards. So I think we, we can talk about the kind of intricacies of R2P if you wish, but I think the most important thing was that juncture in 2005. And while how R2P has been employed has been questioned by some, I don't think it is possible to question now anywhere near what it was prior to 2005, that when international crimes are taking place, that is not the purview of, of, of other states to kind of seek, seek to protect those groups and those populations. To me, that is amazing. That's what we should strive towards. To come back to sort of one country, how does uh, sort of national occurrence impede the progress of R2P such as Brexit? Ah, oh, that is such a good question. Oh, I love it. Well, I think the UK's vote to withdraw from the European Union was devastating to anyone that believed in principles of multilateral working, of open borders. And I don't just mean open borders for populations to kind of cross, but culturally and politically, personally, you know, we all had access to this community of nations. And yes, it gave us the right to work there and the right to travel there. It also gave us the kind of opportunities to sort of fall in love with people from different places, to have friendships that span these places and to kind of ha have a far more open interaction beyond 
our own borders. And I think that while there are many valid criticisms to lay at the European project, that opening up, I think for many of us, represented a move towards a world where our responsibilities and our relationships with one another were not defined as much by our national borders. And of course, leaving the European Union, that also then has implications for other environments or other ways in which the UK has relationships or responsibilities with other states. And I do think that it, it has an impact on how, how the UK itself sees its responsibility to protect populations overseas, but also how other states see the UK in its relationships with other states and its, its international obligations towards those that are more vulnerable or to kind of group working. Withdrawing from that European bloc, it has kind of fractured what was always a bloc in the United Nations that was a vote for human rights. Now, Europe is already fracturing along lines that has nothing to do with Brexit or little to do with Brexit. The other thing I think that you can see in the conversation around Brexit and the UK's responsibility to protect is that the vote to leave the European Union capitalised on and manipulated fears around migrants and refugees in a way that I think was incredibly divisive, very often not factually correct, and that propelled a racist current and an uptick, not a spike because it still hasn't come down, an uptake in identity-based violence, particularly against any that were either non-white or considered not to come from the UK. And that is really problematic for many, many, many reasons. But from the perspective of the responsibility to protect, it indicates a backward slide in upholding to protect populations from discrimination within UK borders, but also many, many of those refugees and migrants come from places that are experiencing mass atrocity crimes and genocide. And, and so I think that disconnect for me was at the heart of that Brexit vote, whether consciously or subconsciously. And the implications I think will be with British politics for a very long time. Well, we haven't uh, mentioned is uh, that UK civil Society Atrocity Prevention Working Group. Could you give us a little insight into what they do, how they slightly differ uh, from protection approaches, maybe in magnitude or goals? Sure. Oh, I mean, it's a fabulous group. So about, I think, 20, 2018, we formally um, established the Atrocity Prevention Working Group, but we had been working informally with a network of civil society organisations in the UK that shared in different ways this goal to enhance UK contributions to the prevention of mass atrocity crimes. And that's essentially what the Atrocity Prevention Working Group is. It's a network of, I think, over 20, possibly over 25 NGOs that are based in the UK, whose work in different ways contributes to that goal. And so it, it, it includes organisations that work to commemorate and to learn from the past. So organisations like Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, Remembering Srebrenica, it includes organizations that work thematically, and part of that thematic work is uh, to contribute to UK atrocity prevention. So organizations like the United Nations Association UK, which works to champion and strengthen the UK's role at the United Nations. And a core goal that the United Nations Association has 
is to ensure that the UK at the United Nations is upholding its responsibility to protect and its contributions to atrocity prevention. It also includes organisations that specialise or, or kind of focus on country specific crises. So Waging Peace, fabulous organisation that I know that you've worked with before that works on um, Sudan. The Sri Lanka campaign that works on violations and atrocity crimes in, in Sri Lanka. Burma campaign that has such a long, long history of working um, on human rights violations and atrocities in, in Burma. So it's a wonderful coalition and we work towards this shared goal in different ways on the principle that we are, we are stronger together than we are individually. We also work to not just improve our external contributions to atrocity prevention, but also to hold ourselves to account. Because one of the other reasons that Protection Approach is founded, which I didn't mention in your earlier question, was to try and establish an organization that matched its human rights values that it promotes externally with how we work internally. When I was working, back in the day as an intern or as an early researcher or as assistants in the human rights sector, including within the atrocity prevention space, it was really quite, quite challenging and quite difficult. And I, I found it very difficult and my, my sort of contemporaries found it very difficult to see how these high aims to create a fairer and more just world were being matched within the organisations that were exploiting us pretty brutally. And there are so many problems endemic in the human rights sector of kind of um, structural racism and inherited bias and misogyny and the exploitation of younger workforce. And so this working group also commits to looking internally and changing those practices. And so when the pandemic hit, we focused on how we could support one another for mental health and well-being recognizing that many of the organizations are quite small, so don't have big human um, resources capacity. And also those that come from big organizations sometimes felt lost in a big system at a time of real challenge and flux and change. So it's a really wonderful coalition of organizations and the partners are just, they're just wonderful colleagues to have. And, and I learned so much from them. And I've always enjoyed working in spaces where you are collaborating rather than competing. And I, I really think that that's what that wonderful working group does and is. What are you hoping to do in the future with these you know, uh, organizations and this, this coalition of people? What are you hoping to achieve in the future after what you've done already? Well, I think there's probably sort of three main goals. The primary goal, and I mean, and it, and it is a policy-oriented working group. And the primary goal is to work with the UK government to deliver a clear, coherent, well-resourced and effective atrocity prevention strategy. And that remains our core goal as a, as a, um, a network of organisations. The second is to integrate the principles of preventing genocide, crimes against humanity, other atrocities beyond our own sector. And the UK atrocity prevention sector has, well, I think when we founded, there wasn't one, but now we there's this sort of like, you know, really rich space. 
And it's to make sure that we are working with all of our partners in the wider human rights space, in the wider community building space in the UK, in changes to education work, ensuring that that commitment and the practices of how atrocities can genuinely be prevented is taken out beyond the atrocity prevention sector. And then the third goal, I think really is just to kind of like keep that inward eye on us all and make sure that we are evolving as a sector and as organizations in a way that is as responsible, uh, as forward-looking, as inclusive, as representative as we possibly can, because there are always things that we will do wrong. There are always um, areas and spaces for change that we will not have our eye on that we should do. And kind of holding ourselves to account is a constant journey, I think. And certainly for me, any path to sustainable human rights change needs to be accompanied by that kind of personal or kind of self-awareness that as you pursue that very admirable goal, there's something about keeping yourself more humble of what you don't know and who might sort of actually be able to help you on, on that way and how you can help others. So I think it's, it's those three, three threads, I think, that we're, we're gunning for. But a UK atrocity prevention strategy is our, our top ask right now. You mentioned how the, the atrocity prevention group uh, has flourished really since you started and how R2P started in 2005. But why would it take so long for this to happen? Why didn't it occur in such magnitude pre-2000? And what was the, the switch that, I guess, helped all this develop? So is the question, why, why has it taken so long for us to come up with the tools I think the answers there have to be really deep and structural or very philosophical. I think the answer is probably that our systems of government and of rights that have evolved in Europe particularly, but in different ways all over the world, have prized individual gain over collective equity. And that's at the heart of it, some of the contestation. And I think that the fight for justice and a more equal, fair world is political because it's about sharing power. And in order to do that, some people have to cede that power. And that's a very difficult thing to do, talk about, or to seize. And if you're seizing it, then, then it becomes a different kind of conversation entirely. And so I think that that's always been the challenge. You know, there are junctures throughout history where you can think that perhaps things could have been done differently, which either could have made things worse or where enormous opportunities for change were missed. But I think ultimately that's the challenge and that's at the heart of where what we're practically talking about kind of has its has its root but i don't know if that's so meta that i've dodged your question no no no, no not at all not at all uh, i guess uh, on the top of, of nations and um how they're working as a collective group now better than they were before how how well would you say the uk is doing in atrocity prevention in regards to other countries well it's getting better at talking about it and that does matter but 
you know, so long as the UK is going to maintain supplying arms to regimes in the full knowledge that those arms will then be used in the commission of atrocity crimes, for example, in selling them to Saudi Arabia for crimes being committed in Yemen, a commitment to standing up to prevent atrocity crimes is going to be inconsistent. So long as the UK government is going to move towards an increasingly hostile environment towards those that wish to seek sanctuary within UK borders, very often from states that are either experiencing atrocity crimes where they are a very serious risk or they have occurred and have then you know, left such devastating political um, security and economic consequences that, you know, very understandably people wish to leave, then the UK's contributions to preventing atrocities will be inconsistent. The UK has become very good at commemorating past genocides and, and very good at committing on public platforms to never again to learn lessons from the past. But until it has a coherent strategy that allows it to make decisions on a consistent basis. And that doesn't mean always doing the same thing. It means having a consistent commitment that places the protection of populations at the heart of questions. Then I think the UK will, will be failing. And I think that it is at risk of falling behind other states. Atrocity prevention thinking is absent at almost every stage of decision-making, you know, whether it's in the prevention, whether it's in the response, or whether it's in post-atrocity policy. I hope that won't be the case. You know, the UK has made this new commitment to prioritizing atrocity prevention. I very much hope that some of those inconsistencies, which I do believe sometimes are not intentional, some of them for sure are made consciously, but that's also what policy making is. It's about making difficult decisions. Um, but hopefully this new commitment to atrocity prevention that the Prime Minister has made will be built out and, and will be reflected in, in, a, in a clearer, more consistent policy with better resources. But um, unfortunately, the cuts in overseas aid to some of the most fragile states in the world that are experiencing ongoing atrocities does make it hard to keep the faith. I think to conclude then, are you optimistic about prevention of mass atrocities in the future? Um, well, the historian in me is, I think we continue to move in a new direction and history is never one of, of a straight line. That's not how progress is made or how it evolves. We continue to have generational shifts where our expectations about how power should be shared and divested, challenges the expectations of previous generations, and, and that is exciting. You know, the fact that we are having conversations about our own identities, interrogating our own privileges all of the time, I, I think that that is where there are opportunities to rectify some of the imbalances and biases in, in thinking in human rights movements, as well as in um, government structures and the United Nations. So in that sense, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic in the sense that the pandemic, while being far from any kind of um, equalizer, 
it exacerbated inequalities rather than reduced them. It was something of a universal experience. And I think there's something remarkable in that. And there is an opportunity as we build back better, whether in our own kind of communities, whether on a national level or on an international level, to recognize that universality and think about what that means for our responsibilities towards others. But more immediately, I do not feel that optimistic. I don't feel optimistic when I have conversations with US partners who are coming out themselves of a very traumatic period of the Trump administration into a new era, who describe the politics of our government here in the United Kingdom with such scorn and disgust. I'm, I, I'm not optimistic about the direction of our, our migration policies, of the cuts to aid, of the inconsistencies of policies towards a country like China, where there is overwhelming evidence of crimes against humanity and genocide against a population. And yet we, we, we lack an ability as a country or as a government to even talk frankly about those crimes, not to mention establish an appropriate response. So I do think it's, it's, it's a real difficult period of flux and challenge. I really hope that, that we're gonna see some important steps forward from the UK government on atrocity prevention and hope that that will go some way to narrowing some of those inconsistencies. And I very much hope overall that this kind of generational shift that is coming led from generations that feel more international that are more conscious of their own identities and their own privileges can kind of lead to something more radical. That was great. Thank you so much for coming uh, and talking to us for this podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. My pleasure.